listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. I hope you'll join me this morning in the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I was thinking about the simplicity of what we just sang and yet how profound it truly is. It's really a declaration of dependence. We talk about a declaration of independence, but when we say to the Lord, I need you, uh, that'd be a great thing to declare to the Lord uh, before your feet even hit the floor in the morning. Uh, You can make that declaration before you even run to the bathroom, right? Lord, I need you. I need you today. I need you when temptation comes. I, I need you to live out the gospel in my life every day. Um, I need you. Something we should declare not just every day, but uh, when the song says, uh, every hour. Every hour I need you. (laughs) Moment by moment, I I need you. Um, It's interesting how uh, as we're growing up, we naturally become more independent. Remember, it's kind of heart-wrenching when your kids kind of gain some independence and they no longer need your help. Well, when you are maturing as a, as a follower of Jesus Christ, actually you're becoming more dependent on him. It's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Um, and so if you get up thinking, I got this, um, you're in a dangerous spot already. Uh, and so all of that right there was just free of charge. That's not even part of the message this morning, truthfully. Um, but at any rate, I hope that uh, when we do come together to worship, you are doing more than just uh, mouthing some words. I hope and pray Uh, that uh, you are thinking about the implications of what we're singing uh, as we affirm the gospel, as we um, just cry out to our Lord uh, and thank him for who he is. Well, 1 Corinthians, we started a new series here last week in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. I mentioned that uh, in this letter, Paul addresses a number of controversial issues in the church, uh, church discipline, Uh, sexual immorality, abuses of the Lord's Supper, among many other issues that, Lord willing, we're going to look at over the course of this series of messages. I uh, mentioned last week that in one sentence, the theological message of 1 Corinthians is really very simply this. The gospel requires God's holy people to mature in purity and unity. If you study the body of Paul's work, and he wrote much of the New Testament, if not most of the New Testament... Uh, he, he fundamentally comes back to one thing. Everything that Paul writes, is, it's about the gospel, that Jesus has died, that he uh, rose again for sinners, and God will save those who, in faith, turn from their sin to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Um, so as we look at this next section of Scripture, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 17. Uh, I was uh, reminded of something in preparation for this morning's message. Um, I'm not can't recall exactly what age I was, a uh, fairly young age. I was probably just going into junior high, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, but it became painfully obvious to me that I was not going to be a gifted mathematician, um, especially when it came to like word problems. And then when you throw fractions into that as well, um, I, I'm pretty sure those are dreamed up in the mind of the devil himself. You know, I was like, I'm one of those people, I could look at some of those word problems and it would be like, you know, if ice cream had bones, how many pancakes would it take to shingle a doghouse? And I, that's, a, that's what I would get out of it. You know, it's like, 
I, I got nothing here. I don't know, you know, until I had a teacher explain to me, especially when it relates to word problems, you've got to look at the meaning of certain words. Like in a word problem, the word of is really important. And when finally I made the connection, of means times. That means I've got to multiply something here, okay? And so, you know, there's different words. The word sum means something, and, and the word, you know, product means something, and, and, and production. And, and so, so when they explained that to me, it became a little simpler for me, okay? And I got some things kind of figured out. Now, what I did learn the hard way is that things get really messed up in a hurry if you divide when you should have multiplied, right? Uh, I mean, it just doesn't work. Well, that, that is true of the church. The church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ gathered as a local body of believers, as we are here this morning, God intends for us to be a place of multiplication. But many times we become a place of division and it doesn't work. That's not the way God intends for his church to work. You know, sometimes I wish that we had churches today like they had back in the New Testament. You know, we'll say that, even theologians. Man, I wish we'd you know, go back to the good old days, back in the New Testament. But here's what you've got to realize. The New Testament churches were messed up too. And certainly the church at Corinth was no exception. I mean, this was a messed up church. And so if you, in fact, the, just the culture of the city and the area in which these people lived and where they were doing life made it, maybe it made it a bit difficult. If you lived in Corinth, you were faced with excessive temptations. The city of Corinth was the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire and without a doubt the most immoral of all the cities of that area. In fact, there was a term that was used throughout the Roman Empire. It was called a Corinthian girl. If someone was called a Corinthian girl, then they were assumed to be immoral and quite possibly a prostitute. If you corrupted someone's life, then it was said that you had Corinthianized them. That's the kind of place we're talking about here. That's how terrible and immoral Corinth was. And this church was comprised of people who came out of a sinful kind of lifestyle and brought some of their problems with them. Their flesh was still there, much like us, right? I don't know about you, uh, but I'm still dealing with that battle every day. <laughs> okay, I get up and, uh, man, I, I think, you know, I'm going to do better here, I'm going to do better here, but I'm still battling that old flesh. And certainly that was the case for the people of Corinth here. And so uh, one of uh, Paul's addresses, one of the first problems that he addresses here is strife and contention and division in the church. Uh, so let's give our attention to verses 10 through 17 this morning. It says this, I appeal to you, brothers. Now, he, he even changes kind of his tone from uh, the, the first nine verses going into this next section here. I appeal to you. I'm pleading with you. He's like saying, listen, I, I beg you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And then he asks some pretty important questions, probing questions. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. 
so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And then he has like this moment of, he kind of remembers, oh yeah, wait, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he says this, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. If you've been involved in church life for any length of time, it really doesn't matter the church, you have probably experienced in some way or another, some level or another, a little contention, a little strife, right? You get together a collection of simple human beings and it's just, it's just going to happen, bound to happen. And we've all heard uh, probably some crazy stories about things that will divide churches. In fact, there's a legend about a church. I, I, I can't verify that this is true. That's why I say it's, it's, it's a legend. The story of a church outside of Mayfield, Kentucky, named No Peg Baptist Church. They say the reason that the church is called No Peg Baptist Church is because years ago, when there were circuit riding preachers going around from town to town and from church to church, there was this one particular circuit rider who uh, always had a riding coat and a hat. But in this church, there was no place to hang his coat or his hat. And so one guy thought, okay, he just got him a peg and he went and put it in the back of the church. Well, it infuriated some people in the church, so much so that they left and formed No Peg Baptist Church. Now, I know that seems ridiculous, but unfortunately, there are true stories just about as ridiculous as that. Uh, in fact, there's a small town in Tennessee that had for many years a Harmony Baptist Church. Until there was disharmony, right? Yeah, apparently some people thought that the piano needed to be moved from one side of the platform to the other side of the platform. No big deal to most people, right? Well, apparently it was a big deal to some people because they took it on themselves to get there early the next week and they moved it back from that side back to the other side. And this went back and forth for some time to the point that some people were getting to church up to two hours early so that they could move the piano to the side of the church where they thought it needed to be. It finally reached a point where a group of the people left and they formed out of Harmony Baptist Church, New Harmony Baptist Church. I've yet to meet a preacher, and I know a lot of pastors, a lot of preachers, talk to them regularly. I have yet to meet one who says, you know what? In the course of my ministry, I've never had anything like that at all. Every church I've served, everywhere I've been, it's just been harmonious and glorious all the time. We've never had disagreements. I mean, it's just going to happen. So how do, how, how do we battle that? Division, contention. It was a problem in the church in Corinth. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 21, I pray that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. So what does that mean for us today? Well, a church that is divided is not truly representing the body of Jesus Christ. Let me bring you a little closer to home. A divided church cannot effectively call a divided nation to unity. Let me say that again for the people in the back, as they say. See, God wants your attention on this point right here. I'm telling you. A divided church cannot effectively call a divided nation to unity. And I don't think any of us would disagree that we live in a divided nation right now. More so than at any time in my life, that's for sure. There's always been division, and there always will be until Jesus returns and sets everything straight, right? But what does that mean for us as a church? It is a sick body when there's division. 
And we're going to see what Paul had to say about this subject. And I want us to do it kind of uh, like, like you might if you, if you are sick and you're experiencing certain symptoms and so you go to your doctor, they're going to ask you about those symptoms. Okay, and sometimes you may feel like, well, we're just treating the symptoms. We've got to get to the bottom of this. Okay, we've got to figure out what's really causing some of these things. That's kind of how we're going to approach the subject here today. So I first want us to consider the symptoms of division. What happens when a church, when a body of believers is divided? Well, it harms the church's reputation. It harms the church's reputation. Uh, I'm often just struck with the thought of, uh, how are we perceived in the community? And I, I was asked it this way one time in a pastor's meeting. He said this. They said, if your church this week ceased to exist, would anybody in your community even notice? That's a, that's a pretty powerful thought, isn't it? And so when there is division, and, and that division characterizes a church... It harms the church's reputation, and more importantly, their testimony for Jesus Christ. Harms the church's reputation. One of the reasons Paul was so upset with his church is he said, you ought to be presenting a message of love, and the community ought to look at you and say, those people love each other. But because there's arguing and disagreements, the church's reputation was being hindered. Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. If you love one another, Paul says in verse number 10 here, that there be no divisions among you. The church is not to be a place of division, it's to be a place of multiplication. We're to be making disciples who make disciples. It's multiplication, not division. So if you were to look at the original language here, verse number 10, you would probably recognize a Greek word that's nestled in there. It's the word schisma. Schisma, because we got a couple of English words that actually come from that word. We use the word schism, and even our word scissors comes from that root word, that very word. The idea of a schism and of scissors is division. If you cut a piece of paper, you are dividing it. You're cutting it maybe in half, or you're cutting it in fourths, or whatever the case may be. It is, it's a divided fellowship. It's a divided body. And this word schisma was used to describe a piece of cloth even in that day, particularly a garment that had been ripped was considered to be schisma. That's what division does. It rips the church. It rips the body of believers uh, apart. And so division harms the church's reputation. Division also hurts the church's fellowship. Fellowship is the word koinonia. It means sharing. Uh, and so when the church is really being true to the body of Christ, when one member is hurting, then all the members of the body hurt. The Bible says we weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. And so as we do life together, that means there are times when my heart just breaks for you because maybe you've experienced the death of a loved one. But my heart also rejoices with you because uh, maybe you've welcomed a new baby into your home. And, and that's the way the body of Christ works. It, it's kind of like this. If you've ever, in the middle of the night, stubbed your little toe, what happens? It, it's like there are other body parts that immediately spring into action, right? It's like I'm hopping around going, oh, gosh, I'm like moaning, and I'm like, you know, and I'm probably hearing my wife snicker over here, you know, because that's how she is sometimes. Usually she waits until she makes sure I'm okay, and then she laughs at me, all right? 
But no, I mean, I, I'm reaching down. I'm like, I, I, I need some comfort here. I am hurting. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. When one of us hurts, we're to hurt with them. We're to, to enter into that pain with them is, is literally what it means. But when there's division, it hurts the church's fellowship. Division, more importantly than, than even those two things, grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that there are really three sins that you can commit against the Holy Spirit. There's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit against the Holy Spirit. Some would describe this as the unforgivable sin. It's, it's unbelief. It's rejecting Jesus. Then Paul talks about quenching the Spirit. And whenever you hear that word quenching, you think of like putting out a fire. And so when the Holy Spirit is leading you to do something and you don't follow the good leading of the Holy Spirit and you choose not to do that, then you are like quenching the Spirit. But you know what grieving the Spirit is? Grieving the Spirit is acting in a way that is contrary to the character of Jesus Christ. And it takes on all different forms. So you grieve the Holy Spirit. And if there's anything we know about the character of Jesus Christ, it's seen in the fruit of the Spirit, we call it. It's found in there in the book of Galatians. It's, it's described as love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Well, here's the thing. In that same section of Scripture, in Galatians chapter 5, it gives us the works of the flesh. And one of the works of the flesh is the word schismata. Sound familiar? So when you become a Christian, you did not lose your sinful flesh. Okay? It's still there. But God introduced a new element into your life, a new direction, the Holy Spirit. And in Galatians, Paul says the spirit and the flesh are contrary against each other. And if you walk in the Spirit, then you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. But if you're walking in the flesh, then you won't fulfill the desires of the Holy Spirit. And one way we say that quite often is, you cannot at the same time be filled with the Spirit. The Bible tells us to be being filled with the Spirit. Okay, we believe that when you place your faith and trust in Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. doesn't necessarily mean that you're filled with the Spirit. You cannot at the same time be filled with the Spirit while you are at the same time full of yourself. You can't. You ever had somebody say, you're just full of yourself? We often get that way, don't we? Where all you can think about, you just become consumed with me, myself, and I. And you're like regularly throwing these pity parties and stuff like that. Okay, it's because you're full of yourself. And, and so you tend to demand your way, and I want this, and I want that. And what does that ultimately lead to? It leads to schismata. It leads to division, the ripping apart of the fellowship of the body of believers. So it's so important that we recognize how this just grieves the Holy Spirit. Some of you parents will recognize what I'm talking about here. It's sometimes in that context that you, that you will use that word. Especially if you have older kids and, and maybe you've taught them, you've trained them, you've, you, you've, you've done all the things that by the grace of God you can do imperfectly, but, but well, you've tried really hard. And then when you see them make a poor decision that goes against the very things that you've taught them, and the biblical principles that you try to instill in them, it grieves your heart. It's, it's just, it just grips your heart. It's grieving. It's the same way with the Holy Spirit. And so we are to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. So when there's division in the body, it grieves the Holy Spirit. The basis for Paul's appeal here, and don't miss this, is that they share the same Lord Jesus Christ. 
They share the same Lord Jesus Christ, which connects to the previous section that we looked at last week, those first nine verses. You see that in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 7, in verse 8, and especially in verse 9. Our love and our devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ is what should motivate our unity. And you'll notice here, Paul doesn't appeal to them in the name of Paul. He appeals to them right off the bat. I give thanks to my God in verse number four, and then he's, he's given them this affirmation and everything. He goes, but I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I haven't traveled a lot internationally, but I've traveled enough to know that the body of Christ looks different, functions a little different in, in various parts of the world. Uh, I've had the privilege of going to, to England, spent some time over there, and, and spent some time touring London and, and preached there for a week. Uh, I've been to West Africa, and so I've seen the church, the body of, of Christ in those contexts. And, and I would say it's very different than here. The way that they do things is very different. But you know what I discovered as I was around fellow believers? There was something that united us. There was something that brought us together. You know, have you ever met somebody and you're just like, I'm pretty sure we're supposed to be friends, right? That, that's kind of the idea. Okay, do they do things very differently than us? Absolutely. Do they worship differently than us? Yes. Does their church, do their churches may not look like? No. No, they don't have this cool plastic tile like we have, okay? I mean, you know, there's just a lot of differences. But I found my heart united with theirs. And what unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the symptoms. But what is the cause? Let's, let's bore down into this thing. What is really the cause of division? Paul said that there were at least four factions or groups in the church at Corinth. It had become so, so divided that you could identify, actually, these groups within the body. Division is often caused when, when you get one little group over here and another little group over there, you know, whatever. You don't have to have multiple groups. I mean, what do they say? It, only, it takes two to tango, right? But in Corinth, there were four different groups, and he identifies them. First of all, he refers to the Paul followers, Okay, he wasn't fond of this concept, this idea that some people were just putting all of their, their attention on him. It was like the, the, the cult of personality, right? And so the Paul followers, these, these are people that we would maybe call the pioneers. Okay, these were likely the equivalent of charter members because Paul founded the church in Corinth. If you study the book of Acts, uh, the, the spread of the church, uh, the gospels going forth. He was the one that, that went there. He led the first converts to Christ there. He established the church. He was the, the founding pastor. And no doubt, there were some of the people there that were led to Christ under Paul's ministry. And so they liked to do things the way that Paul always did them. And, and by this time, we don't even really know who the pastor is with certainty. But, but can't you just imagine, as some of these newer people came, it caused a bit of division. I know the first church I pastored as lead pastor was uh, up here in North, Northeast Texas. It was in Clarksville going out toward Paris and a small body of believers. But one of the things uh, that they knew is that they needed some younger folks in their church. I mean, when we got there, they had not had a baby in their parsonage since the 60s. Okay, and so that, that tells you something. And so they, they knew we, we, need to, we need to minister to young families with kids and those kind of things. We've got to get some younger folks in our church or we're just going to die off. And that, that was true. 
And while they knew that to be true, they knew that was reality in their world, what happened when some of these new people came, they were not necessarily met with welcome arms. Pastor, they're sitting in my seat. Oh, oh you, put, you put one of the new people on that committee that I've been serving on for 45 years, right? Suddenly, they start feeling like they're, they're, they're moving me. That, that would have probably been kind of like this group here. Okay, the pioneers. And what, what happens is you can develop and adopt this mindset whereby you are consumed with merely preserving history even. And I, I'm not, I don't want you in any way to hear me say that history isn't important. Okay, I understand the importance even of tradition. But what happens many times is tradition in churches becomes traditionalism. Okay, and you begin to worship tradition. That was probably a little bit of this group here. They, they had their eyes on Paul. He, he was, we follow Paul. Okay, then you have the Apollos followers. These people we would describe as the preacher lovers. I had a guy in one of my previous churches when I first met him. He was a deacon. He came to me. In fact, the weekend that I was there in view of a call, and he looked up at me and said, I just want you to know something. I'm not a preacher lover. I thought, howdy doody. I really just kind of taken off guard a little bit, and finally I just backed up, and the Holy Spirit gave me the answer because I said, I'm fine with that as long as you're a Jesus lover. <laughs> but th these people were probably kind of preacher lovers, and here's the reason why. The book of Acts tells us that Apollos was a young, golden-throated orator with a lot of personality, a, a charismatic kind of figure. And when he preached, this group could probably be overheard saying things like, he can preach, I mean, even better than Paul. And later on in his letters, Paul said, I came to you and I spoke with weakness. I had no dynamism in my preaching, is literally what he says there. And while we don't have any physical descriptions of the Apostle Paul in, in the New Testament, but in the third century AD, Pliny the Elder, he gives a description of Paul. And he describes a guy who was very short in stature. And if you transfer what Pliny the Elder said about the height of the Apostle Paul into in our modern day measurements, he would have been about four foot eleven. Pliny the Elder goes on to say that Paul was bald, he was bow-legged, and had an eyebrow that went all the way across his head. So think 4'11", bald, bow-legged, with a unibrow. Okay? And then here comes Apollos. The guy's name sounds like a Greek god, right? Apollos. I mean, good night. So you got Apollos who comes on the scene, and he preaches up a storm. And you get these people who come into the church under his ministry, and they say, oh, Apollos, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. You know, that kind of stuff. He's the best. You should get his tapes and his books and all that kind of stuff. He's great. And the Paul crowd says, you should have heard Paul. He's not flashy like, oh, Apollos, but he was solid as a rock. And so these people start dividing over personality. It's the cult of personality. And then you get this third group, the Cephas followers. These were the legalists. They said, we follow Cephas. Now, if you don't know who Cephas is, it's Peter. Now, commentators love to write whole chapters even on, on this one little thing right here. They try to prove or disprove whether, uh, whether or not Peter ever went to Corinth. Okay, as far as we know, we have no uh, record of Peter ever going to Corinth. So we believe this group was probably a group of Jews who had migrated from Israel. Maybe they were part of the Jerusalem church where Peter was certainly more prominent. And so you've got to understand where they're coming from. They are Jewish believers 
And it's very obvious in the book of Acts that these Jewish believers were very legalistic. They were having a hard time leaving kind of that, 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 that way of thinking. Everything's black and white, never any gray. And you remember what these legalistic Jewish Christians tried to do in Acts chapter 15. They said, what do you mean these Gentiles are becoming Christians? They can't become Christians unless first they become circumcised. And they must obey all the dietary laws of the book of Leviticus. And they must, they must become good Jews. It was a big argument. A legalist is one who still totally lives under this thou shalt and thou shalt not uh, way of doing things. And we have legalists in the church today. Still do. People who are much more interested in rules and regulations than they are the principles of the word of God. Rarely change their mind about anything. Always their way and no other way. And that was probably the way we would kind of characterize the Cephas crowd. Then you got this fourth group. And if you've already looked ahead, you're probably thinking, Pastor, those are my people. That's my people. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a Christ follower. Well, don't get too smug just yet, okay? Sounds good on the surface, but Paul lumps this group with the others. This group very likely sanctimoniously claimed to follow the Messiah himself. Now, I want you to look at the text again. If you look at verse number 12 again, where Paul lists these four groups, the problem is not with the word Paul, or even Apollos, or Cephas, and it's certainly not with the word Christ, which means Messiah. The problem is the word I. I. You could circle that here in the text. These people were saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. Well, I follow the Christ. You can just imagine this thing. It's pride that keeps us from getting out of the problem. It's pride that keeps us from admitting that we're wrong. President Lyndon Johnson used to tell a story about an old hound dog that was lying down, hollering and yelping all the time. And a man came up and said, is that your dog? And an old farmer said, yep. The person said, well, why is he hollering like that? He said, because he's lying on a cockleburr. The guy said, well, why didn't he get up off the cocklebird? And he said, because he dislikes to holler. <laughs> and I think that's the way some people are in the church. A little lady in one of my churches, she would come to me all the time. She'd say, Pastor, I've got a bee in my bonnet. And she had a lot of bees in her bonnet. And there was more than a couple times I thought to myself, you've got to find that hive and you've got to get rid of it. I mean, there's some people that just like to bellyache. They're going to bellyache about everything. I've had people, we, we have a Sunday where you have a couple people get saved. you got two families join the church. I mean, it's just an amazing day. And that person will come up to you and go, sure was hot in here today. I'm just like, Lord, come on now. I mean, one time in a church I serve in South Texas, somebody had given us this really nice piece of granite. We were Cornerstone Baptist Church, okay? And so got it out of Missouri. So one of our staff on a trip went up there with a flatbed picked up this nice piece of granite. We had a guy come professionally and he put Cornerstone Baptist Church on it and everything. And we had it set up professionally at the base of our flagpole and everything, put the year it was established. This lady in our church, her name was Joy. Joy. I guess there was a time in her life when she was a joy, but I never knew it. After she saw that, she came in and she said, well, it looks like a tombstone to me. It doesn't matter what you do. Some people, they're just going to complain. They're just going to complain. Just, you ever met people and you're just like, they are just hard to get along with. 
No matter what you do, you, you just can't get on the same page. Well, that happens a lot within churches. I think we all know that's true. So here's the most important part. What is the cure for division? What is God's cure for division? What's the same today as it was for the church at Corinth? Now, I want to use two words, and I want you to learn that one of these comes only from God and one comes from us. Okay? So understand this. God creates unity. God creates unity, not uniformity or unison. God creates unity. Only God can create unity because unity is totally contrary to human nature. Human nature, the flesh, is me, myself, and I. But God can create unity. Now notice that unity is not uniformity. Okay, we're not striving to have a bunch of little mindless minions walking around here just puppeting and parroting everything that Pastor Mike says. I have to agree with Pastor Mike on everything. That's not, that's not what we're looking at. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not uniformity. We're not saying that we all have to agree on everything. Okay, and that's why it's so dangerous that the church is becoming so divided right now over things that really ultimately do not have any eternal significance. Okay, I know that may come as a shock to some of you, but, but, but God is, is, is not in heaven. Jesus is not in heaven going, well, old so-and-so got elected. I guess I'm going to have to come on back now. He's not doing that. Okay, God's not pacing back and forth because of the craziness that's going on in the good old U.S. of A. He's not. That's why we have to continually pour our hearts to him in dependence. Because when we pray... That's what we're saying. Lord, I'm depending on you. I need you. You're never going to inform God of something that he doesn't know. You get down to pray at night, you're not cluing God in on something that he hadn't figured out yet, okay? You're just not. God is sovereign. God is omniscient. God is omnipotent to work in these crazy situations that we find ourselves in. So do you believe that? If you really believe that, then live that, for goodness sake. Because a divided church cannot effectively call a divided nation to unity. So God creates unity, not uniformity, not unison. Unison is everybody singing the same part. But when, when we sing harmony, that's the beauty of the body of Christ. See, we're all different. And I think God made us different so that he can make us one. Now, some of y'all are real different, okay? But no, I'm... I, I'm glad that we're different, aren't you? Wouldn't life be boring if everybody was exactly the same? I am so grateful that we have people in this church who have different giftings, different passions, all those things, than I have. I, I'm so thankful for that. And one of the things that I love most about ministry is seeing how God takes all this uniqueness, all these different things, and he puts it all together and creates this amazing unity and can make much make much of the, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God creates unity, not uniformity or unison. And then we practice agreement. Here's our part. God creates unity. We practice agreement. Go back to verse 10 again there. It gives that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you so that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Unity is what God does, but when we agree, then he allows us to be united. That word united, it's a beautiful word. It's a word that was used by, uh, by a doctor. It's a medical term that means to, to, to mend a broken bone, to set it back straight. That's the idea. 
And so even when there is division in the church, by the grace of God, that division can be mended. We can come together in agreement. Agreement in what? Well, agreement in thought. Now, again, this does not mean that we all think exactly the same way. Okay, that we see every issue exactly the same way. We're not talking about that. So the, here's the thing. If you're thinking right or biblically, and, and I'm thinking right and biblically, then we will begin to speak biblically. And, and if you're thinking right and you're speaking right, then you will act right. I'm thinking one thing. You're thinking another thing. Who's right? Well, we, we don't know because you don't have to think like me and I don't have to think exactly like you. But we both must be striving every day to think like Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is like our tuning fork. That makes sense. You don't have to tune your mind to my mind so that we think exactly the same way. I don't have to tune my mind to your mind necessarily, but we both should strive to tune our mind to Jesus. And when I'm tuned to Jesus and you're tuned into Jesus, then guess what? We're going to be tuned into the same thing, right? We're going to make beautiful music together. Agreement and treatment. How do we treat others even within the body? Scripture has a lot to say about how you treat people talks very clearly about not giving people special treatment because you think they have means or more resources than someone else. So it's like, remember there's that section in scripture where it talks about, oh, don't, don't, don't bring that brother down and give him the best seats just because you think he's somebody. No, we're all just desperate sinners in need of a savior, right? Myself included. And so when we understand that and we come together in an attitude of unity and in a spirit of agreement, nobody's treated any better than anybody else, that's when we can be unified. Now, there are some things about which I will fight you. <laughs> okay? So this is not saying being agreeable to the point that you don't stand for truth. Okay, there are some essentials, the Christian faith, for which I'm going to fight. Now, when I say fight, I'm not talking about, I'm not going to, you know, punch you in the nose or anything. I might feel like it at times, but I'm, no. So there are some things that we call essentials. And we talk about this in our new member orientation. There are some things that we say we hold in a, in a closed fist. They're not negotiable to us. You say, well, like, like what? Well, like the Bible is the very word of God. Okay, it's not just good literature. It is the authoritative, all-sufficient, inspired Word of God. Okay, so if you come in here and you try to teach something else, or you're trying to sway people to another belief as it relates to the, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, that's something we're going to have words about. Now, I'm going to try to do it in as nice a way as I can. I'm going to do everything I can to be Christ-like. But that's something over which we might divide. Okay? Now, there's a lot of other things, even in Scripture, about which we may disagree. You take eschatology, for example, the end times, where some people have super strong opinions about eschatology, about the end times, the timing of Christ's return and what that looks like. They'll tell you, I'm pre, and if you're mid or you're post, then, you, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things in Scripture that we, can, we don't have to totally agree on, but we should be agreeable on those things, Right? That's why Paul mentions this whole thing of who's, who baptized who. He goes, I didn't even really baptize that many of you. And I'm kind of glad because if I baptized all of you, then it would be really easy for all of you to say, well, I was baptized by Paul. 
I'm following Paul. You get the idea. We find agreement in truth. There's some things about which we just can't compromise. Can't do it. So how do we say it? In the essentials, agreement. In the non-essentials, liberty. Liberty. And in everything, love. In everything, love. Because Paul is going to say a few chapters later, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that I can speak even with the tongues of men and of angels, but if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. The, the problem today is a lot of people, they can be right, but it seems like they are always right in the wrong way. Let's don't be those kind of people, okay? I mean, we live in an age today where it's like, as long as I can get somebody told off and I can drop the mic, I feel so good about myself. You know what that is? That's the flesh. If you take pride and you become arrogant because you've told somebody off, you've, quote, set them straight, that is not of the Spirit of God. And we're living in the drop mic age. Booyah! <laughs> Got to look for just that right meme or just that right little, you know, whatever, so I can drop it on somebody. That's not the Spirit of Christ. So what is Paul saying here? Same thing he's saying to us. Get your act together. Get your fellowship together. Don't gather around some human personality, whomever it may be. Gather around the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what unites us. I'm reminded of a little five-year-old boy who got lost in a big city where he lived. A police officer picked him up and took him to the station. The little boy just so upset and crying. He could hardly talk and he couldn't tell them his address, couldn't tell them their, his phone number, none of those things. And finally, they asked him if maybe he could describe the neighborhood that he lived in. Where do you, where do you live? And, and really wasn't coming up with anything. And then finally, he said, oh, yeah, there's a, there's a church by my house, a, a church, and it has a big cross on it. And he said, if you can just take me to the cross, then I can get home from there. That, that, that's what Paul's saying. Just keep taking me back to the cross. Are we going to disagree sometimes? Absolutely. But can we be committed to doing it in a Christ-like way and do it in an agreeable sort of way for the glory of God? Because check this out. This whole thing is not about me and it's not about you. It's all about Jesus. And we can't effectively call people to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, if we're divided. We can get home from there, can't we? I think that ought to be the prayer of every person who's a part of First Baptist Church Van Alstine. Every member of the New Testament church. Lord, get me to the cross. Get me to the cross. Keep me at the cross. And I can go home in unity and agreement from that point. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.